and welcome back for our last re-release Monday episode in our Building a Research Survey 101 series. This is the third episode titled Preparing a Survey and Gathering Data. This webinar originally aired in March of 2021 and if you would like to see that video you can follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to part three, preparing your survey. In this part of the course, we will cover validity and reliability, question type and statistics, and we'll touch on collecting data and reporting considerations. Your survey will typically follow in this order. The first thing you're gonna have is a consent form, and this could come from your IRB or you could use the GDPR guidelines. The European Union has set up the General Data Protection Regulation. The purpose of the GDPR is to provide a set of guidelines for data protection, making it easier for participants to understand how their data is being used and protected. The second section of your survey will be the screening questions. These will be the questions that will determine whether the participant is appropriate for your survey or not. You want to be sure to include any questions that you are using for quotas in the screening section. For example, if you want to ensure that half your participants are male, you need to have that, demograph that demographic question up front. You should also start broad and get narrower. For example, if you are studying female teens with psoriasis, you would start with gender, then age, and then the disease. You also want to disguise what you're after. So instead of asking, do you have psoriasis, yes or no, you would list psoriasis among several other conditions or diseases. And you really want to keep your screening questions to the minimum. You don't want too many questions. After the screening questions, then you get into the general questions the purpose of your survey. And you want to start with questions that are broad and easy to answer. You don't want to scare people off with questions that are too hard to answer early on. You want to build somewhat of a rapport with the respondents. And then you will move into more specific questions. And you always want to keep out an eye out for um, using validated questions from other sources where possible. And then you end with the demographic questions, leaving the most sensitive questions like income to the end. Like any good piece of research, you will likely be building on previous findings. In some cases, you will have the opportunity to use specific questions that were used in other studies. Depending on your research objective, a good proportion of your survey questions may come from other reputable sources. We've already mentioned that the consent form can come from the IRB or GDPR. Demographic questions might come from the U.S. Census, and your literature review may provide questions used in previous research, including validated questions, like the Children's Dermatology Life Quality Index, that's the CDLQI. As you are pulling your questions together for your survey, you want to consider validity and reliability of the questions. As a reminder, validity has to do with measuring what you think you're measuring, and reliability has to do with getting a consistent measure. 
For example, if you're studying a skin condition that is affected by the weather or seasons, you may need to control the timing of your, of your survey to get a reliable measure. Now let's take a closer look at validity. Imagine these statements are intended to measure the effect treatment A has on quality of life. So looking at statement one, treatment A improves my quality of life, versus statement two, my quality of life improved after starting treatment A. Which do you think would be a better statement for measuring quality of life as an effect of treatment A? Statement one explicitly links QOL to treatment A, whereas statement two is a little bit more ambiguous. In statement two, QOL may be affected by other factors that occurred after starting treatment A. Furthermore, statement two could be interpreted in more than one way. Statement two could be read as a direct effect of treatment A on quality of life, or it could be read as a milestone where other factors affected quality of life. For example, maybe the respondent won the state championship at the same time they started treatment A, making statement two both a less reliable and less valid measure. Let's talk a little bit more about validity. There are two categories of validity, internal and external. External val validity is the extent to which you can generalize your findings of a study to other settings or groups. In other words, can your findings apply to all patients in real life scenarios? Internal validity is associated with the controls in your study or survey. That is eliminating alternative explanations for a finding. Quantitative studies are generally more internally valid, whereas qualitative studies are generally more externally valid. Close-ended questions are controlled the respondent can only answer the questions you offer to them, whereas open-ended questions are not controlled. The respondent can enter anything they want in their own words. Close-ended questions will be more internally valid, whereas the open-ended questions will be more externally valid. There are several types of internal validity, but we're just going to talk about a few that you might run into while doing survey research. In surveys, we often encounter construct validity because we use multiple questions to answer a particular construct, such as anxiety, depression, or in our case, quality of life. When measuring quality of life, you're likely to have several statements or questions that measure it. In your analysis, you can determine how well the questions did at measuring that construct. For example, we may find in our analysis that statement one did a better job than statement two at measuring quality of life. Content validity refers to the extent to which a measure represents all facets of a given construct. So when you put together close-ended questions that are intended to cover the range of possible responses, you just want to make sure you've captured them all. So in our example with describing a skin condition, or symptoms, you want to make sure you have all symptoms, all possible symptoms listed and have a space for them to add their own with 
other. Doing qualitative research before your quantitative survey can help you figure out what all the facets are of a particular thing you're studying. Criterion validity is how well one measure predicts the outcome for another measure. For example, how well does treatment duration predict QOL? You can improve reliability and validity by using standard measures for common constructs. As mentioned earlier, you can use the Children's Dermatology Life Quality Index for measuring QOL, or you can use you can use the U.S. Census or questions from the World Health Organization for demographics and other health-related questions. By using validated measures, your results are also more comparable and relevant to other research. Whether you are using questions that are validated that were created by somebody else or you're creating your own, you want to make sure you determine your analysis plan early. You should decide how your questions will be analyzed at the time you're writing your research objective. If you have a statistician on your team, it's critically important that he or she reviews your questions, particularly the type of data that the questions produce. As you are designing your questions, you need to keep in mind how that data will be analyzed. As a reminder, there are four types of data. There's nominal, which is like categorical data, ordinal data, which can be ordered or ranked, interval data, so there's equal intervals between the options, and ratio data, which is like a number. The higher level data, like ratio data, think of numbers, has more flexibility in terms of analysis because you can turn numbers into ordinal or nominal data. You can turn interval data into ordinal or nominal data, but it can't work the other way. You can't turn a category like nominal data into a number. So your question types will produce one of these data types. For example, single select radio buttons or multi-select checkboxes when you've seen those in that question format, that's going to give you nominal data. Think about a demographic question or preferences. Likert questions or rank questions will give you ordinal data. Think of attitudes towards something, whether you strongly agree or disagree with a particular statement, or maybe ranking the severity of side effects. That's ordinal data. Numerical response questions will give you interval or ratio data. The difference between interval and ratio just has to do with whether there's a true zero involved. Temperature and dates don't really have a true zero point, whereas um, age, height, and weight do. A zero means the ab absence of height or weight. And then your open-ended questions will give you qualitative data. You may just use the verbatim responses from your qualitative data or code and summarize that data looking for themes. But let's talk a little bit more about Likert scale data because it's so common in survey research. Likert scale data is technically ordinal data. However, 
They are commonly treated as interval data in analysis, but should they be? In our ordinal example, how satisfied are you with treatment A, you can see that our scale is relative from very satisfied to very dissatisfied. In this case, the distances between the options are not necessarily equal. Individuals can interpret the scale differently. It's a subjective measure. For example, I might feel like very dissatisfied and somewhat dissatisfied are close together. Well, you may not. Whereas in our interval or ratio example, how many doses of treatment A have you completed? There's no question that the distance between one dose and two dose is equal to the distance between two doses and three doses. The scale for doses is universally understood. It's an objective measure. So taking the mean or standard deviation for number of doses is also uni universally accepted. It's something you can do with numbers. However, taking the mean and standard deviation of a satisfaction rating might be challenged by some because it's not a uniform scale. It is not technically an interval scale. But you see it all the time. People report mean satisfaction scores. So what are your options in this case? The first option is just to treat Likert scale data as ordinal data, which it is. You just have to analyze it with non-parametric statistics. Parametric statistics and non-parametric statistics are just two broad classifications of statistical procedures. Parametric stats are based on the assumption of a normal distribution, and that distribution is established by means and standard deviations. But if we're going to treat our Likert scale as ordinal data, then we can't take the means and standard deviations, so we can't have that assumption of normality. And that's fine. We can just use non-parametric stats that run your data based on the relative position or the ranks of the data rather than using the means and standard deviations. If you want to learn more about using non-parametric statistics, there's a good reference on this slide to the Mayo Clinic and an article that describes it well. Another option is to make your Likert scale data more like interval data. You can do this by using composite scores rather than a single score. If you have several questions to, that measure one construct, such as the QOL, then you can take means and standard deviations of the composite score. Or you can increase the number of points in your scale. For example, you could go from a 5-point scale to an 11-point scale. Using numbers in combination with your scale wording can help respondents think of their scale as a regular interval. Parametric statistics tend to be a bit more powerful than non-parametric statistics. So shifting towards interval data may be something to consider. Statistical tests have a set of assumptions and data requirements that need to be considered when crafting your survey questions. The statistics you run will depend on the type of data you collect. There are several resources available to you online to help you determine what the appropriate test or data type is for your analysis. 
This is just one example taken from health knowledge. Using our example, our treatment type is nominal, treatment A or treatment B, and the outcome is QOL score, and we can assume it's normally distributed in this example, and so it would require a t-test. We're going to compare two means of a QOL composite score between treatment A and treatment B. But now suppose our outcome, our QOL score, is not interval data. Let's suppose it's Likert scale data, or it's not normally distributed, or perhaps we didn't have a big enough sample. We had fewer than 30 respondents. In that case, we could use a non-parametric equivalent, such as the Mann-Whitney U. These are just examples of how you might consider your data types and analysis. As you are constructing your questions and considering analysis, you also need to think about the length of your survey. Survey fatigue used to be confined to survey length and the degree of question difficulty. Now we have the sheer volume of surveys to contend with. Everyone is sending out surveys. To determine the maximum survey length in your case, you should consider your sample frame. Are the potential respondents in your frame inundated with surveys? And how invested in the survey will your respondents be? Are you providing an incentive? In terms of your survey itself, you should consider how demanding the questions are. Open-ended questions are going to be more taxing than closed-ended questions. And ultimately, how long is the survey? Keep in mind that while incentives can increase engagement, you may also attract gamers, people who are trying to do multiple surveys to increase their incentive amount. While survey length tolerance is highly dependent on the type of uh, respondents you're likely to get, it's a good rule of thumb to aim for something less than 10 minutes. The most critical questions for your research should be answered sooner in the survey if possible to avoid fatigue affecting those answers. Once your survey is programmed, you want to test it a lot. We recommend not only testing the survey in the field, but test the survey data as well. Once you get a handful of surveys back, make sure your data looks complete. Be sure to track the disposition of the responses. In most cases, your survey host will do this for you. But if you're doing this on your own, you will need to track the number of people who were sent the survey, the number of reminders sent, the partial and full completes, and the number you discarded upon review. Ideally, your screening criteria will weed out any respondents who would be inappropriate for your survey. However, sometimes you can't recognize a survey that should be discarded until you've received the data. When you're doing your initial data check with those few surveys you've sent out, that's a good time to develop a system for discarding bad surveys. Criteria for discarding a survey might include the amount of time they spent on the survey. For example, if it was a 10-minute survey and they spent less than a minute, you might also look at whether they flatlined their, their responses. For example, they just entered the same number on scaled responses throughout the entire survey, or whether they entered gibberish in the open-ended questions. 
Or they could have entered conflicting or implausible responses. For example, they said in one question that they had never tried treatment B, and another question they responded that they preferred treatment B. You can also add redundancy. You can put in questions just to check the consistency of respondents' answers. Have a complete data set, you will code your open-ended responses. You need to look at the other responses, such as when I touch my skin, it is hot, and make sure it's not represented in the close-ended responses of that question. If it is, you simply backcode that and treat that as, in this case, option five, warm to the touch. The person running the stats should also prepare the data for the stats package. For example, SPSS, JASP, and R require your data to be in a very specific format for running your statistics. Cross tabs or your frequency tables will be your working document to do the analysis. It provides the most comprehensive view of your data. The columns are data points from which you can slice your whole data set. And the rows represent the individual questions and responses in your survey. The frequency tables can be easily misread. You want to make sure you understand what the base is for each column. For example, looking at the female column, there are 236 females in this data set and 30% of females gave a fair rating. Some people make the mistake of misreading tables. It is not 30% of those who gave a fair rating are female. It's the other way around. Most of your reporting challenges can be minimized with the advice provided in part one of this course. So as a reminder, be sure to understand your journal or conference manuscript submission requirements as early as possible. Document your research challenges and the decisions along the way to minimize confusion as your research team changes over time or as the timeline is expanded. And you can avoid rework by involving the statistician and the writer as early as possible. This wraps up part three, preparing your survey. In summary, keep validity and reliability in mind as you're crafting your survey. Use previously validated questions where possible. Carefully consider question format like data type and scale given your analysis, your analysis plan and the statistics you're going to use. And as you're composing and programming questions, Keep that analysis discussion going in your head and involve other team members, especially the person running the stats. Be mindful of length and, fa and fatigue given your sample frame and carefully track the progress of your data collection in your disposition. That concludes our course. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact us at LaunchBox.